Thank you, Sophie, for reading the scripture for us this morning. And thank you, Wally, for sharing those stories. And I think it's okay that you went over time because God gave me just some very simple ideas to share today. So between us, it's, it's going to work out. We are approaching the end of our short series on the foolishness of God, rooted in this belief that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And in this series, we've been exploring alongside our teacher, Coalette, the strange work of our God in this world. And this week, we turn to one of the questions with which we began this series. Why is the race not to the swift? Isn't that kind of the point of a race? And why is the battle not to the strong? That is the point of a battle. Why does all the wisdom in the world not ensure that you have enough to eat? nor all the intelligence ensure you are properly compensated, nor all the skill that you are fairly judged. If this is the way that the world is, well then it's really no wonder that the teacher's common refrain is that everything is meaningless. Because if the changing seasons of our life and the events that we experience really are this unpredictable, really are this inescapable, really are this futile and abrupt in their coming upon us, it's perfectly reasonable to ask, what's the point? Honestly, if we can't study long enough to ensure that we get a good grade, and if we can't work hard enough to ensure our success, and if we can't train thoroughly enough to prepare for any outcome, and if we can't even be careful enough to protect our children no matter what, then why bother trying? What is the point of a world where all of our efforts, all of our skill, all of our talents and treasure and time guarantee us nothing at all? This is what the teacher sees under the sun. And it's what we've seen too, isn't it? The professor who taught me my course on wisdom literature shared that the reason why he believes the Bible is that when he reads it, he recognizes our world. That if we were going to invent some sort of religious text, we would probably try to come up with a world that sounds a little bit better than this. But this is how it is, isn't it? The race is not to the swift, though we judge that it ought to be. The battle is not to the strong, though that seems only fair. Favor is not to the skillful, though they may deserve it most of all. The teacher seems to be conceding, and I think we would each agree that our world is not fair. It's not just. It's not predictable. And I'm sure we each have stories in our lives of exactly this when we're positive that we are deserving of something and it goes to somebody else or it goes some other way. We've lost the scholarship. We've been rejected for the job. We didn't win the competition. Our business has failed. Though innocent, we have had rumors shared about us. We've been there. And more than just individually, we've seen this broadly in our society as well. There are people who are not afforded opportunities because they didn't have the right connections. Because they were prejudged for their sex or their race or their culture of origin. 
There are immigrants and refugees in our city who are well-educated and immensely qualified, who cannot find work in their field because we do not value their credentials. So they work whatever job they can find to provide for themselves and for their families. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong. And favor is not to the skillful, says the teacher. These things the teacher chalks up to time and chance. And strangely, he does not call these things which he has seen under the sun a grievous evil, though usually that's what he would say. But it doesn't take him very long before he gets there. In the following chapter, that second passage that we heard read today, he says it is a grievous evil and a great error of rulers that fools are in high positions and the rich in low ones. He's saying that he sees people who are promoted beyond what they can handle or kept lower than they ought to be, and that that is a great evil. And probably we agree with that too. When nepotism shows its face in government, we all shake our heads. Surely this member, this first-time member of provincial parliament with no leadership experience at all ought not be a cabinet minister. And when the highly skilled are denied opportunities to do the good that they might do, we all lament. We can understand why the teacher would see these things as a grievous evil. But one of the greatest critics of Christianity saw this same evil as our teacher, Coelet, and he sees it as the foundation of our faith. Nietzsche was very critical of the Christian faith, not least because he saw it as an attempt to privilege the poor over the rich, the weak over the strong. He viewed this as a revolt against the natural order of things, and like the teacher, he called it a grievous evil. Because we expect the rich to be powerful. That goes hand in hand, doesn't it? We expect the foolish to be low and the unskilled to be forgotten. We expect the slow to lose and the weak to be oppressed. This seems natural to us, the way things ought to be. It's only fair, only right, that those with skills succeed, those with means govern, and those without should submit to the status quo. This is what Nietzsche certainly believed, and it seems to be what the teacher expects as well. And I think many of us come to this place believing these same sorts of ideas. It's just the survival of the fittest and the law of the jungle, and it should be the norm for us as well. And it can feel like an evil, even a backwards thing, when we are accustomed to power and to privilege, and we do not get what we feel we deserve. It can feel wicked when we are skillful and wise, but we do not find half the success that others around us seem to have with far less skill than we know we have. And we can shrug our shoulders and, like the teacher, call our successes and our failures nothing but time and chance. Or we could take it that one step further and say that this is a grievous evil that has been done to me. But I would challenge us today to see instead the very goodness of our God. 
That sounds strange. How could this be the goodness of our God? But consider the many stories of the people whom God chose to do God's work. Joseph, though a skilled manager, was falsely accused and put into prison that God's glory might be revealed through him. Moses, who was a man not of words, but slow of speech and tongue, was called upon to speak against Pharaoh that Israel might be free. David, who was the youngest son of Jesse and but a shepherd boy, was anointed to be king over all Israel. Though the king of Aram had multitudes to overrun Israel, God showed angel armies through Elisha that would tip the scales of the battle. And though Haman had a plot to massacre the Jewish people, God worked through Esther to open the king's eyes and enact justice. Do we not see how in God's story the race is never to the swift? The battle is never to the strong. Favor is never to the skillful. If Joseph had risen to the right hand of Pharaoh without first being put in jail, he, and indeed we also, may have credited his position to the skill that he had rather than God's work through him. And had Moses been a famed preacher and an eloquent speaker, perhaps we would be persuaded that Pharaoh had been convinced by beautiful words to free his people and not that the hand of God had been in that place. And if David had been the firstborn son, it may have been thought that Jesse's house was challenging Saul's house for the throne and not simply that God's blessing had been moved. And had Israel's armies been greater than the armies of Aram, people would have been in awe of Israel's earthly king rather than her heavenly one who gives the victory. And had the king discovered Haman's scheme without Esther's intervention, those who were so saved may not have remembered it so very gladly. Yes, the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the strong, nor favor to the skillful. And while we may often lament this fact, truly we should be able to see the tremendous joy that it offers. Because though we may feel cheated by this way of the world, this reality, though it may chafe against our simple concepts of right and wrong, far more often we have been the beneficiaries of such a world. That though we are not the most skilled, we are not the most wise, not the strongest or the brightest, nevertheless, we have had the opportunity to do good work to reveal God's kingdom, to bear God's name to other people. This is how God chooses to work in our world, that it might be apparent that every race, every battle, every favor won, every gift received or treasure earned is not our doing, but God's alone. This is the work of our God in the world. But more than that, we must realize that it is, in fact, the very gospel of our Lord. Yes, our Lord who said that the greatest must become the least and the least will be made the greatest, who binds up the brokenhearted and raises up the lowly. Nietzsche, I would say, was right. Christians are in the business of supplanting an imagined natural order where the strong succeed 
and the powerful remain in power. Because we follow, yes, a foolish ruler who to all the world seems to have erred by placing fools in a position of honor and humbling the proud in heart. We worship a lavish God who gives the same day's wages to one who begins in the morning or one who begins nearly at sundown. We acknowledge a Savior who became weak that we might become strong, who suffered and died that we might know life. If this were a world where the battle was to the strong, well, then we would be crushed. And if favor was only to the skillful, then we would have nothing. But thanks be to God, whose upside-down, crooked, and backwards kingdom is coming soon, and who gives us, the weak and powerless and hopeless, the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though Nietzsche may call it evil, though the teacher may say this is an error, we who believe together may see Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Indeed, as 1 Corinthians reminds us, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Some of you are wise, but your wisdom has not fed you. Some of you are brilliant, but your mind has not provided for you. Some of you are strong, but your strength has not saved you. Rather, God has done these things for you that no one may boast. If you are swift, if you are mighty, if you are skillful, do not rely on these things. Use these gifts to God's glory, but know that it is to the glory of God and God alone. And if you are slow, if you are weak, if you are humble, know that to you our God has promised his kingdom, where the slow are victorious, where the weak are made strong, and where the humble are highly favored. In our simple ideas of right and wrong, we expect things to be a certain way. Believe that if it is natural, if this is true even for the animals, then it must be good. It must be the way things ought to be. But thanks be to God who does not give the victory to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor favor to the skillful, but by whose saving work in the Son, Jesus Christ, has shown a better way, that we all, though foolish and alone, might be given an inheritance and a kingdom, might be honored as a beloved child, that truly none of us may boast, but that by that upside-down ways of that kingdom, all might be saved, even the weak, even the helpless, even the hopeless and the lost. Yes, even you and even me. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me?
God, the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the strong and favor is not to the skillful. And to us so often that seems unfair. That seems wicked even. That seems gravely unjust. And yet when we look at ourselves and we acknowledge who you are, we see our weakness. We see our sloth. We see our many flaws. And we realize that this is an incredible gift that you've given to the world. That we don't need to be enough to make it. That we don't need to be anything other than you created us to be. And you provide for all of our needs. Help us to put aside the the grudges that we hold, the things that we believe are yet owed to us because of who we are and what we've sought to accomplish. And help us to cling instead to who you are and what you've accomplished for us. That you, Jesus, set aside the glories of heaven and became weak and lowly, a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. And by your work, you have shared an inheritance with the whole world. Help us rejoice in that very good news, we pray. Amen. In this time of reflection, I have a couple of questions to help you maybe make this a little bit more personal. And so the first is just, how do you feel? How do you feel about the race not being to the swift, the battle not being to the strong? Be honest. Acknowledge that feeling, whatever it is that comes up for you. And secondly, how might Jesus' kingdom ways help you retell the stories of your own successes and your own disappointments? We'll give you a couple of minutes to begin those reflections now.